This is Peak Earth. I'm Case Bradford. Thanks for tuning into this episode with Dr. Bill Schindler. Out of the 80 or so books I read this past year, my favorite was Eat Like a Human by Dr. Bill Schindler. Bill has a PhD in anthropology. He takes a deep time perspective on what to eat and more importantly, how to prepare it to activate the more nourishing aspects of the various food ways that our ancestors have been relying on through throughout time, throughout our multi-million year evolution to become the people we are today so disconnected from our food system. He brings up the importance of reconnecting to our food system and the nourishing aspect of that. He also puts these principles in the play at his restaurant, the Modern Stone Age Kitchen in Maryland, where he teaches classes on hunting, harvesting, field dressing, fermenting, foraging. It takes about a week to create these beautiful sourdough pizzas. I would love to visit that restaurant someday. He's also the founder of the Eastern Shore Food Lab, where they are fusing ancestral foodways with modern culinary techniques to empower people. He's a great guy. He's a force of nature. He's a powerful human. And in this conversation, we discuss eating earth, ash, charcoal, insects, why he always recommends fermenting dairy and peeling potatoes and the most flourishing, the thriving, the the epitome of health in human form, a tribe in Africa. What were they consuming? Almost exclusively milk and blood. It's fascinating conversation. I appreciate you tuning in. Hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Bill Schindler. All right, I'm here today with Dr. Bill Schindler. How are you? Good, good. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Really excited to, to speak with you. I have your book here, Eat Like a Human, and really one of the best books that I've read on the topic of health, nutrition, cooking, and it's got a great evolutionary historical perspective. It was my favorite book that I read this year out of 80 or so books that I got a chance to dive into. What was it? What was it like writing this? That's a really good question. Well, first off, I'm so glad you enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it was about actually a, a, about an eight year long process. Uh, and I'm glad it it went in the different directions that it did. I, I originally had a vision for a slightly different book um, and wrote a manuscript for that book. And I'd learned so much through that process that com- completely revamped all of it. And then my, I, I went on sabbatical. At the time I was teaching at Washington College, I went on sabbatical. I brought my family to Ireland. Uh, I was engaged in a couple of food projects in Ireland. And from there, we had used that as our home base and went all over the world and, uh, and just learned more and more uh, from different indigenous and traditional groups. And that really became the basis of the book, that kind of second round, that second, that second writing. And then um, uh, I, I had a really amazing editor and it just, you know, just went from there. But it, it was it was a long, drawn out process, but so I don't want to overstate it, but, but magical. I mean, all, what I was trying to do, I've learned so much about how to feed myself and my family um, that I wanted to just convey all of that information to hopefully empower people to do the same thing. Um, and it was, it was a wonderful journey. I think what was unique about this was because you're coming at this from, you have a PhD in archaeology and, and anthropology, mm-hmm. not in like nutrition and health from a lot of these other health books with the writing, but it also integrates this deep wisdom it's like so rich in, in wisdom and, and it's almost like you were unearthing 
really powerful ancient relics, not like, uh, you know, the Great Pyramid of Egypt, where we don't exactly know how they made it, but you're, you're uncovering these methods of, of tools we still have today. We still have all these foods. We're deeply confused about how to, you know, eat them as a society to be healthy. And you've unearthed these methods. You've, you've blown the dirt off them. So, hey, look, I have these amazing methods that we can use to, to implement the foods we still have to be healthy and, and powerful humans. Yeah, and, and none of it is new. I mean, it's it's actually all very old. And our great 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 grandmothers would have would have and grandfathers would have known how to do this. And they were so uniquely connected to their food that the questions that we have to ask ourselves today weren't even questions in the past. They were just you know we just knew how to do these things. Um, and I'll tell you, I started college in 1991 at Ohio State, and I started I was wrestling there, so of course I was interested in nutrition. And I started my first semester as a nutrition major. That's how I went into college. And I, I lasted one semester. And I'm, I'm glad. Now, listen, there are some amazing nutrition nutritionists out there and, and health practitioners, amazing dietitians. Do not get me wrong. But the, the way it was taught in 1991, at least the, the program that I was in, just didn't make sense. It actually caused a whole bunch of more questions and, and confusion. And it just didn't make sense. So I left that program. And my college career is a well, a long sort of thing anyhow, but I left that. And then I'm, and I'm glad I did because I was able to then come at it through an archeological perspective. But at the same time, years later, when I really thought graduating college was not in the cards for me for a number of different reasons, I almost left and was going to go to culinary school. I just knew that I love food and I was passionate about food. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do culinary school. This academic thing really isn't working out for me. So I, I, almost left to go to culinary school. And for the same reasons, I'm glad I didn't. If I did go to culinary school, I'm sure I'd be working at a restaurant right now, but doing the same sorts of things that everybody else is doing with food. So I waited. And then from the archaeological and anthropological perspective, I started to approach food and diet and health. And then after looking at the world through those lenses, then I started to think about nutrition from a more... Um, you know, from a modern standpoint, then I started to look at, you know, then I got to started to get trained as a professional chef. But after, you know, creating that foundational approach to all of this, which I think was so very key to anything that I'm doing now. It, it really is a solid foundation. And it, it makes me think of the foundation that we're given, at least that I was given growing up was sort of the food pyramid. Like, hey, you're going to eat, mm -hmm. you know, 10 to 12 servings of grains as the foundation of the food pyramid. How, how would you sort of describe the food pyramid based on what, what you know and what you've learned? What, do you, what the right food pyramid is, you mean? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I don't think it's news to anybody listening to this. I'm sure if you're listening to this, you're already well tuned in to, to, to some of these ideas. But if you take the food pyramid and turn it upside down, that's exactly the kind of, <laughs> of food pyramid we should be eating. Um, and from every perspective, and if you do it the right way, and there's so much false information out there, and it just seems like the loudest person or the most boisterous person or the most, um, uh, the best speaker or best present presenter or the best writer seems to have these platforms and it doesn't matter what the information is and if it's valid, it just automatically becomes valid because we hear it and it just keeps getting regurgitated. The crazy thing about when you turn that food pyramid over is that it turns all of our understanding about modern nutrition upside down, and it should, but it also um, it it also becomes more ethical and more sustainable than the modern food pyramid. I, and I know there's this big plant forward you know, movement right now, and we can dive in deep to some of that. But 
when you, it, it isn't as easy as saying plants or animals. It's, well, how are you approaching the plants? How are you approaching the animals? Makes a huge difference. The way that we approach animals in my family and also in our restaurant is a completely different approach than, um, than most of the, you know, the modern industrial food system. And in my mind is the, not only the most nourishing way to go about feeding yourself and nourishing your family, but it's also the most ethical and the most sustainable. You can get all that by turning the food pyramid over on its head. And the reason I kind of dove into that real quick is because I think some people maybe tuning in could, could understand. Yeah, I, I get it. Like if you look at the ancestral diets and how, um, how much protein and how much high quality saturated fat was in their diets, I get that, but I'm still a little bit hesitant because I don't want to ruin the planet for my grandchildren. Well, <laughs> you're not. It's, it depends on how you do all of these things. And in fact, when you look at it, um, a very plant forward approach, at least the way we're doing it today, is incredibly taxing on the environment, on the planet, on our fossil fuels and all of those things and definitely on your body. Yes. And gosh, it's just one lie after another with, with mainstream nutrition advice and, and how it ties to the environment. And if we look back to the way that our ancestors lived for a long time. It was very different from, from what we have going on today. When, when you were in Africa and you were observing the very different way that they approach food and, and nourishment, what, what struck you most as, as, as a Westerner going over there and seeing the, the way that they were, they were doing things? Uh, there, there were lots, lots and lots of different things that, that struck me. One thing you have to remember too, anybody listening to this is, you know, my family and I have been very fortunate. We've spent a lot of time with indigenous and traditional groups in all different places around the world. But even though that is so incredibly informative, it's not a direct correlate to what you would have seen 10,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago for a lot of different reasons. But one of those reasons is because the modern world has pushed these traditional groups to the margins of the environment. Like literally they've, because obviously for the same reasons as a hunter gatherer, you want to be in a certain area, it's fertile. It has good access to water. It has all, all these other wonderful benefits. Somebody that's an agriculturalist wants to be at the same spot. And then, you know, the agriculturist is there and they're coming in with an army and a larger population. And then now you want to build a city, you know, a huge city in the same spot. And if you think about every single Every, almost every single major city in the world is located on like the best spot of a river or somewhere that has a place for a port to ship things, right? So these indigenous and traditional groups, while they many of them are adhering to some wonderful aspects of their traditional diets, are sitting on the margins of, they've been displaced from all the wonderful places that they've been living. Um, so, and, and are having to deal with a whole lot of, of new hurdles that they never had to deal with before as a result of that. Regardless, going in there, just seeing how they operate, there's several things that I thought were really unique. One is fat is highly prized everywhere I went around the world. High quality, incredible animal-based fats are highly prized, highly coveted, highly sought after. And for me, you know, a kid growing up in the 70s and the 80s where fat was demonized, this, you know, hits me in the face quite a bit. Um, animal sources in general are highly prized. Everywhere that I went, there was this innate, just, just um, uh, elementary, basic approach to eating the entire animal. You, you don't kill an animal, take the back straps out, and leave the rest of it to rot. Like, the meat is incredibly important, but 
the first thing they go after are the organ meats, the blood, the fat, the organs, the brains, the, all of those things are consumed. And it's not because they feel like they have to do it. They relish it. I mean, they, they, imagine growing up with those flavors and their textures that are strange to us in the modern world because we've been forced beach nut baby food for the first you know part of our life. Um, these are flavors and textures and aromas that um, are satiating they're fulfilling. They've been a part of their, you know, some an individual's life for since they were infants, and they're highly sought after and consumed, you know, with with passion. And then the meat is consumed. So th that that part I think is across the board. I see that. Another thing that I think is very interesting is that you know we have all these different names and we're you know, the different ways of fasting and doing these other things. And there's intermittent fasting and there's you know lengthened or shortened eating windows and whatever. We we have all these names, but the reality is this is not new and it really makes sense. Um, and whether I was living with a hunter gatherer group or even an agricultural group that are still doing things very traditionally, that kind of eating seemed to be the norm everywhere in the world. And it w always went something like this. Everybody get up in the morning and then go work. They, whatever that work was, whether they were hunting, whether they were gathering, whether they were tending fields, whatever they were doing, everybody got up and went to work. Maybe they had a cup of coffee or a cup of tea or something, but they, they didn't sit there and make this huge breakfast and sit down and have these conversations. They got up and went to work. And then sometime later in the day, usually um, in the early afternoon, people would come back and something from the night before that was left over was consumed. Sometimes it was reheated. Sometimes it was eaten cold. But whatever leftovers from the night before were there, they ate. Then they went back out and worked until there was no more daylight. Then they came back and everybody sat down and somebody from that family or that clan or that group had stayed back and had spent the entire day preparing this meal. The largest meal of the day was in the evening when all the work was done. That's when you gathered. That's when you gossiped. That's when you talked. That's when you told stories. That's when you ate the big meal. Um, you visited with one another, went to bed and got up and did the same thing the next day. It just worked really well. It was a natural part of, you know, moving, moving things around the modern life, the way we deal with jobs and transportation and, 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 and shuttling kids back and forth to school and school buses that come in ungodly hours in the morning. And those, all of these things have, are, are modern, you know, things that have messed up those types of rhythm that just made that kind of eating, um, make sense on a regular basis. So one of the things that I love is that this was all so intuitive. We, you know, it just made sense. You, you, one of the, you, you kill an animal, you eat the entire thing. You want to work, you want to get things done. You do it during the daylight because you don't have light bulbs. You don't have all these other things that are extending your day as long as you want. You do it and you eat at a certain point and you go to sleep and you get a good night's sleep and you get up. You eat until you're full. You eat the things that create the most satiation, that create the, mo the you know, most pleasurable eating experience for you. All of these things make sense. And today we have issues like, and I know it's a hot topic right now for a lot of different reasons, but we are so disconnected from our food. We can do silly things like, oh, somebody can tell us that a lean chicken breast is the best kind of protein to eat. And if we have enough money and access to a grocery store, we can go to the grocery store every single day and buy a lean chicken breast without ever seeing a chicken or, or eating any other part of the chicken. And we can do this. And then we have to ask the question, well, how much of this should I be eating? It's weird. But on the other side, the flip side, we're being told, and a lot of these conversations are so happening in extremes because they're the ones that get the most attention. We should be eating massive quantities of liver and like bull testicles and all of these other things, right? So 
I am a huge advocate of eating organ meats. Don't get me wrong. But now we're left with the question, how much liver am I supposed to eat every day? And I have so many people asking that question. And that's a question that you've never asked before in the past. If you ask somebody 10,000 years ago, how much liver should you eat in a day? They're going to say, hey, you see that animal I just killed? How much liver does it have? We're going to share that liver. And then we're not going to have liver again until I kill another animal. But we can go to the grocery store just like that chicken breast. And we can buy 30 pounds of chicken livers with no other part of the chicken and bring it home and then ask the question, how much of this should I be eating? We are the, the answer to all of this. I love podcasts. I love books. I love documentaries. I love going to conferences and listening to all these incredible people speak. But the answer to most of the questions that we're asking are become incredibly simple when we reconnect with our food, where it comes from, and the proper way to prepare these foods. 99% of the questions, that maybe not 99, 90% of the questions that most people are asking about food, diet, health, especially in terms of nourishment and ethical approaches to food and sustainability, all of that could be answered if we start removing some links from our food chain. I'm 100% convinced of that. I am 100% aligned with that as well. And <laughs> it's it's crazy because we're, we're all inundated with with this abundance and it's, be, it's become such a, a blessing and a curse. And it's almost like there's no way to reconnect the food, really. The best way is through, the most accessible way is through stories like the stories you tell in your book. I This past weekend was in Austin, Texas, where I was first time in my life. I'm, I'm 32 and I was present at a bison harvest where they killed the bison, mm. opened it up, and we ate some of the raw testicles, liver, kidney, and heart and it, it was a, an amazing experience, a really powerful connecting experience and something that you do kind of have to experience firsthand to get the full understanding mm -hmm. in it. But it was there was really no opportunity prior to that. No one was like, hey, let's, you know, go on a hunt. Let's slaughter a chicken. Let's go to this farm and see, you know, an, an animal being slaughtered and then eat something fresh. It's just it's amazing how disconnected we are. Yeah. And, I don't. I is part of the reason why I'm really glad to be connecting with you because you are pushing this movement to hey let's let's get to the roots of this thing let's stop worrying about our macronutrients and our micronutrients is how much of this and that it's like let's get back to the roots that's where we're going to just reconnect in that experiential level and and learn from having our hands in the belly of the beast so to speak hundred percent and, and this isn't to suggest that an understanding of micronutrients and macronutrients and all the other important nuances of true metabolic health are not important. They absolutely are. I just spent my son and I, uh, my son's 17. We just spent a magical week with um, uh, Robert Sykes and Danny Vega and uh, Mike Mutzel and, um, and Brandon Scott and, and uh, Anthony J. We were at, at uh, Robert Sykes family ranch in Austin. We were hunting for the week. And I mean, it was truly magical. These guys are amazing and brilliant. And every one of them brought uh, an, uh, a set of knowledge. Um, you know, they were just great guys anyhow, but also their knowledge base was amazing. And I'm listening to these guys talk. And especially like Mike, for example, he's talking about these nuances of, of, of metabolic health that literally is going over my head. And I know it's incredibly important. And I know for some people, um, they're so far removed in, in some aspect of their health uh, that they need a nuanced thing to bring them back in. And I know how important that is. I also think, though, for the majority of people, if we just find ways to do what you just did in Austin and, and start, to or start to look at 
the world, our place in the world, our place in diet, our, you know, all of those things through a slightly different, more connected, visceral lens than a lot of the right things will, will, will literally fall into place. We need to start trusting our bodies. We have senses for a reason. It's not just, oh, we just happen to be able to smell or we just happen to be able to see or we just happen to be able to taste. All of those things are there. Those senses have are, are the product of millions of years of evolution that allow us. That's the first access to the knowledge about the world around us that we have, all of our senses. I know we think about sight now. We see things. But just like other animals, those senses are, are, are what allow us to operate in the outside world. And now, you know, we're sitting on trains and subways and, and cubicles and all that. But the reality is those are the senses that allow us to have the knowledge about the outside world that help us stay safe and help us nourish ourselves. We have to get back to being able to trust those senses. If it smells bad, you probably shouldn't eat it. If it smells good, maybe it's worth taking a taste. And, and, and But the, the other problem is, and I just talked about this with somebody yesterday, and, and how this is so, to me, when I, when I realized how insane this was, I'm like, oh my God, this is like one of the most insane things in the world. We take a, we actually, as humans, we spend a lot of time teaching our infants to not trust their senses. We put them in a high chair and they're starving. Well, not starving necessarily, but they're hungry, like really, really hungry. And we give them food. And in many cases, like cream spinach from a can of jar of beech nut, they spit it back at us. And what do we do? We shove it back in. And then we make it look like an airplane or we play little train games and we keep shoving it back in and we get mad because we're throwing it back out. How weird is that? I mean, how weird is it that we have a, a, an animal? I mean, our babies are animals, an animal that's hungry and we give them food and they're throwing it back at us. That doesn't happen in the natural world. I mean, in, in, in the wild world, because those organisms are eating something and using their senses and they're saying, oh, this is good. And they eat it. Or if it's bad, they don't eat it and they never eat it again. But we are teaching her every time we put that spoon in their mouth or that cream spinach, we're teaching that kid to not pay attention or trust their senses. And that I truly believe is the root of a lot of the dietary issues we have later. But it's definitely the root of us having to ask somebody else what we should be eating. I know people now, listen, I, I, I'm coming at this. I'm a parent. I have kids now that are 19, 17, and 15. I fed them beach nut baby food. I fed them, God, I'm so embarrassed to say this, for a very short period in the beginning of their lives, Kraft macaroni and cheese. I did those things. But I also know people now that are that are nourishing their, their babies how I wish I had. And they're giving these babies raw beef liver and the kids are eating it up. Like they're eating it up. So there's some, there's definitely something to it. I mean, I remember reading in the baby books, my wife and I had all the baby books and the magazines and all this when we were, when we were new parents. Oh, I forget the number. Is it 10 times 20? Like a, a kid won't develop the taste for the food unless you uh, make them eat it 10 different times or 20 different times. I forget what the number is. It doesn't matter. That's, that's the wrong way to look at it. The, you know, that's not what there's, what the reality is, is you will, beat them down enough for 10 to 20 different times of making sure the forces food into their bodies that they're not going to trust their senses anymore and they're going to succumb and they're going to give in. I mean, that's the reality of what that statement really, really means. So what do we do now as adults? I'm, I'm going to be 50 next year. What do I, what, what, what should somebody like my age do after having, you know, so many years of, of that, of that sort of, um, um, disassociation from my food? Well, it, it, it's for number one, it's connection. And number two, 
this, and I'm convinced what we need to do is do everything we can to eat a nourishing, like a nourishing, a fully nourishing meal, sit down to the most nourishing meal, do everything you can to create this nourishing meal. When I say nourishing, I mean, not only the food is nourishing, but the context is nourishing. You're with people that you love or respect. You're, uh, the temperature's right. I mean, everything's right. And you sit down, eat that meal, enjoy that meal, and remember what it feels like when you got up from that meal. And that should be your, that, that's your barometer. I mean, that, that is your, that's your temperature gauge. Every meal from that point forward, you should strive to repeat that experience. Now, a lot of times you're not going to get it. A lot of times I just, when I drove back from uh, Arkansas with Billy, it was 19 hours on the road. I mean, we, we had to stop and eat at a couple places. We did some truck stop stuff or whatever. Like you're not going to be able to replicate it every time. But if you strive to do it, imagine meal after meal, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, what place you're going to be in in five or 10 years if that's the goal. Keep listening to the podcast. Keep reading the books. Keep going to the conferences or whatever you need to do to inform yourself and inspire yourself. But that simple thing, that's a human thing that we have been doing since we've been on this planet. And I think people just doing that are, are going to see huge, um, huge results in months or years. That's awesome. That's a, that's a great vision and a really compelling place to start for people. It's not, you know, make up the meal plan and, and meal prep for, for a week. <laughs> it's like, no, just sit down to one really nourishing meal in a, in a you know, dim room, maybe light some candles, play some nice music, sit down with people that you love. And, and enjoy that thing fully. And, you know, it's not DoorDash in front of Netflix, you know, that's yeah, or the or, or 7-Eleven on the dashboard when you're driving or something. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> when, when this is something I've been thinking about lately, when, when most people imagine healthy eating or a nourishing meal, I, I think it's probably something like a salad. And then maybe they're like, you know, I don't want to eat salads every meal, but what, what do you imagine when you think of healthy meal, nourishing meal, what, what comes to mind? Actually, I I envision the exact opposite of a salad. Um, well, I, this is this is another. I will directly answer your question in just a moment. I promise. But I got to build up to it. There's a couple things <laughs> I have to say. We have this sort of martyr approach to health. Like for some reason, we believe that we need to go through some sort of pain or suffering or loss or something to get healthy, and I. I, I know I used to feel that too. It's like, yeah, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to go on a diet now. I'm going to try to lose. I've been battling weight almost my entire life. I'm going to, I'm going to try to lose weight. So I know that I'm, it's going to suck for like six months and I'm going to, you know, every meal, I'm never going to feel full for six months. And then maybe I'll get to the weight that I want. I can walk out on the beach or something like that. It's the most insane way to approach it. What, in what world does it make sense that for you to get healthier, for your body to be nourished, you need to go through pain. Now I'm not talking about muscle building. I mean, using weights and that kind of thing. I'm, I'm talking about losing weight or just getting metabolically healthier. You should feel good the entire time. Now there's certain things like detoxification that you might go through if you, you know, you cut out plants from your diet and those sorts of things that your body flushing bad things out. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is that you can very easily lose weight and feel satiated at every single meal. Now, I don't mean feel like the end of Thanksgiving where you got to open up your belt loop three. I mean, I mean, feel that sense of fullness, completeness, satisfaction after every single meal. And that's exactly how it should be. You can lose weight and enjoy. I mean, like incredibly enjoy every bite of every single meal 
that takes you on that journey to, to lose that weight. And that's exactly how it should be. Eating a salad to lose weight is the most ridiculous thing in the entire world. You need to nourish your body and that's, that, that's it. So this is modern day humans, especially in this country, want to eat all day long and not get fat. I mean, that really, if you think about it for most of us, that's our goal. Eating is such a social activity for humans. And, and it should be that we enjoy the act of talking to each other, putting our hands in a bag of chips, drinking a beer, whatever it is. I mean, it, it's part of the whole context. So we want to keep eating and we don't want to get fat or we want to keep eating and we want to lose weight. So our brains automatically say, oh, well, if we're going to do that, then we need to seek out the most nutrient-free food that we can get. You know, if we go to the low fat, the low calorie, the low whatever, then okay, I can eat all day long and I'm not going to gain any weight. That's silly. And it's the first time in, 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 in the history or even prehistory of our species that we approach food like that. For the majority of the time we've been on this planet, the focus has been, how do I get the most amount of nutrition with the least amount of work? Let me get the most nutrient dense food that's so bioavailable, my body doesn't have to work very hard for it. And that's what I need to do. Today, we seek out nutrient-free food, and on top of that, pay to go to a gym to sit on a treadmill to expend more energy. Like, it literally is the exact opposite. And our brains, and I understand why, like, mathematically, it makes sense, right? That, that whole why we've been told for decades, you know, calories in, you know, calories out, burning and all the fat and all that. Obviously, it's not, hopefully, most of us realize it's not like that anymore. But from that perspective, that approach superficially seems like it makes sense but it's the exact wrong way to do it. If you, if that's the approach to diet that you have or losing weight, you are going to live a life of, of martyrdom <laughs> with your food. You're, you're not going to enjoy your food. You're going to be hungry all the time and you're not going to be fully nourished. What we should be doing, I am 100% convinced and it has transformed my life and the people that I work with approach food from that same perspective as our ancestors. How can I get the most incredibly high quality nutrition with the least amount of work possible and, and how do I make that taste the way it should taste? How do I satiate myself? And how do I just live this amazing life and enjoy every bite of food that I have? And the way to do that is not with a salad. And if it is with a salad, because you might like the vegetables or the texture or something, then make sure you're putting incredibly high quality fat on that, you know, not seed oils, but a really good dressing or something that is, you know, to at least you're getting some nutrition from it. Um, so for me, a nourishing meal consist of, and again, number one, and I, and I don't want to get hokey with this, but if we're really talking about nutrition, uh, we do remember that we are, humans are very complex organisms and our relationship with food is unlike any other animal on the planet. Number one, I do believe, before I get to the exact what the food is, that context is important. Food that we're connected with and somehow is different than food we have no, we have no connection to at all. Food that you either forage yourself or hunted yourself or butchered yourself or cooked yourself is different. It lands differently on you and your psyche than food that you just get at a restaurant or food that you know the farmer or you or you actually got, you know, at the farmer's market and you met the farmer's family. That's a different even even if the nutrition was exactly the same. There's something different about that that is connective, that is part of the, the human experience with food. So number one, food that is, has some sort of meaning um, is important. The context that you're eating it in is important. The time, you know, when you're eating it, what you're eating it with are all, and who you're eating it with, all extremely very important. But with that said, high quality animal protein, high quality animal fat are the basis of all of our foods. 
and when and but we do eat vegetables. I am not a hardcore carnivore. Um, I do have a very low carb diet, but I, I'm not 100% keto and I'm not 100% carnivore. We do have vegetables, but when we eat vegetables, we do have to realize. I don't know if you know Anthony Chafee. Uh, He's a good friend of mine, and he's he's on a mission right now, and, and he, he's wearing shirts to say he talks about on his podcast that plants are trying to kill you. At some level, they are, and we do need to realize that plants are inherently dangerous. That doesn't mean there's some we can't eat, and there doesn't mean there's some we can't eat with some sort of processing, but we do have to go into that animal, I'm sorry, that plant-based food part of this with caution because some of them can can really, really hurt you. I enjoy the taste of different vegetables. I enjoy the texture of different vegetables. We include them in our diets, um, more so from that than from a nutritional perspective, but we do. Um, I We do a lot of dairy, but all of our dairy is fermented. It, we don't drink glasses of milk, right? Uh, my, my kids grew up on, they went right from breast milk to raw milk their entire lives. But, and I know this, and, and I'm a huge advocate of raw milk, but there's one step better than raw milk and that's raw fermented dairy. So things like yogurt, real yogurts, real kefirs, real traditional cheeses, completely different foods and a glass of pasteurized skim milk. So we do include dairy. Um, we don't do a lot of nuts. I used to, it got me in a lot of trouble with oxalates. Um, we do, the, the nuts or the seeds that we include in our diet are very low oxalates. So uh, good choices in my mind are things like sunflower seeds and pumpkin seeds. I will never eat another almond or almond-based food in my entire life. Um, uh, pecans are fairly low. Pistachios are fairly low. Pine nuts are off the charts high, so I'll never eat pine nuts again. Uh, poppy seeds and sesame seeds are off the charts high. And, and if anybody's sitting here eating tahini, do understand that tahini is 100% made from sesame seeds. So if you like your tahini or you like your hummus, a very good alternative is to use sunflower butter or to get sunflowers and grind them up yourself. It is a very low oxalate, awesome alternative to sesame seeds. Um, so I don't know if that answers some of your questions, but I think that that's what our diet. Oh, as far as um, two, two other things, grains and sugars, we don't eat a lot of anything with sweeteners in it. We stay away from any artificial sweeteners uh, and the sweeteners that we do use are, are completely unrefined. So we use a little bit of honey, a little bit of maple syrup, um, and a little bit of what we call muscovado sugar. Uh, this is, that is the most unrefined sugar there is. And the cool thing about muscovado is the flavor is off the charts. It is crazy. It comes with all, you know, not only does it come with extra, extra minerals and other wonderful things, but the flavor is so intense. You don't need as much of it. And yeah, we don't like to replace ingredients with fake ingredients just to have some sort of a, I'd rather, I'd rather eat the real version of a food and eat a little bit of it than a whole lot of something with a bunch of fake ingredients. And as far as um, grains are concerned, uh, we actually own a sourdough bakery as a part of our restaurant. So we do eat some grains, but the grains we eat are always 100% wild, long fermented sourdough. Fascinating. And that, and that touches on something I was really curious about because following along with the paleo movement the past decade or so, that led to a big surge in these alternative flours, almond flour, coconut mm. flour, cassava flour. But you're using long fermented sourdough, like you said. What, what do you, how do you perceive that, that situation of all these different flours <laughs> and, and the way the paleo movement kind of sprouted that? Yeah, it, and it, it depends on, th th there's a place for a lot of these different things. I, I love a lot of the paleo movement. I love a lot of the carnivore 
movement. Um, I love a lot of the keto movement and depending on our keto approach, I don't know if movement's really the right word, but uh, depending on where you, what, what you're trying to accomplish and where you are on your own health journey, some of these things might make incredible sense for a few months or even a few years. What, um, if you're looking for, if you're looking for weight loss and rapid weight loss, a keto approach will give it to you without a doubt. If you're looking to detoxify and get a lot of these plant toxins out of your diet, a carnivore approach actually will give you both, right? Because it'll be low carb by, by default. Um, what I've found, and we've been through all of these, me, me and my wife have been through a lot of these different, different approaches. What we found is, yes, we can get that rapid weight loss. We can get that detoxification. We can get that whatever we're looking for. Um, and then we get to a place where we just want to enjoy everything. Like we truly want to enjoy. I love, I absolutely, and I know people are cringing right now, but I absolutely love the aroma, the texture and the taste of a warm slice of sourdough bread with some beautiful fermented butter on it. Like there's not much that can compare to that experience of eating that piece of bread. Eating that piece of bread is worth every single bite. Eating 30 slices of that bread in the same sitting is a completely different story. But one slice of that bread, the emotional you know, it brings me back to my childhood. It brings me back to, you know, when my daughter was really young and she'd stay up late at night and I'd pull sourdough bread out of our wood-fired oven just so she could get that one slice. I mean, that is nourishment as well. So what we're trying to do here, what I try to do with the book and what I try to do with our restaurant, which is based entirely on that book, is, okay, you want to be, you're doing keto, you're doing carnivore, you're doing paleo, whatever, you know, we can, we can provide the support and the food that you need you're not there yet or somebody in your family isn't there. You know, I, I know so many people that are doing keto or doing carnivore, but they had, they're, they're raising kids and you know, the kids are just eating a standard American diet. Have them come in, like come here and have our pizza. Our pizza's made entirely. We make every, everything is hundred percent from scratch here. Even, even our cheese, all of it, our pepperoni, all of it. So it takes us entire Friday night. Tonight is the night we do pizzas. It takes us a whole week just to make the pizzas for tonight. It is a completely different food than you'll get at any other pizza place because we make all the cheese from local milk. We make all the meats on it from local animals. Um, we, it's a long, wild, wild, long fermented sourdough crust. I mean, it is a completely different food. Should you eat that every day? Probably not. If you're going to eat pizza, that's the healthiest version of, of, of that pizza to have. So, you know, I, I really, truly believe that different people are in different places on their journeys and, 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 and different diets make sense because of different goals that people have that they're try, trying to accomplish. I also feel, and you know what, I have repeated this on every podcast I've been on for the past month, and, and I think it was one of the most brilliant things I've heard said in a very long time. Brian Sanders said it um, a couple months ago. He said, just remember the diet that healed you may not be the diet for the rest of your life. And I think that is so incredibly important to remember. Most people in the modern world right now are eating such poor diets that any change, vegan, carnivore, keto, paleo, whatever the heck it is, is better than what they've been eating. So they see results and then they get fooled into thinking, oh my gosh, like I'm getting better. So this is the best diet for me. And it may be, but chances are it's just that that diet is better than the really, really poor diet that you've been on. So listen, get your results, pay attention to your body. And then, you know, if you hit a plateau or if you're still something bothering you, or if you want to change, 
look and dive into some of the other approaches to food. And then maybe there's something that is either better for you in the long term or better for you in that moment. We're all going through different journeys on different paths in different ways on different at different rates. Um, and even if there's people in the same household, we have, to, you know, there's different things that we may be trying to deal with. I have battled oxalates my entire life. I will never eat spinach or an almond for the rest of my life. But my wife doesn't seem to have any trouble with those things. And she'll eat, you know, every now and then she'll have a little bit of spinach or she'll have a handful of almonds or something like that. We live in the same house. We've been married 22 years, but still there's slightly different approaches that we, we have to deal with because we're listening to our bodies. I really like what you said there about the fermented sourdough with, with the cultured butter. It, it is nourishing on, on a level, maybe a spiritual level, you know, yeah. it's, it's an experience that kind of transcends just the everyday. And that's a great reason why to use the, those ingredients instead of something alternative like a cassava or an almond or a coconut, because you're getting that real high. It's almost like a drug in a way, um, mm -hmm. I, you know, where it's, it's transcendent. And just to take the conversation back a little bit, Further, you mentioned something also really fascinating about highest nutrition, um, highest nutrient density with the lowest amount of effort. Mm -hmm. That made me think of what the, I believe it was the Maasai we're doing with the milk in, in the blood where those are both pretty low effort, right? Like you've got, you've got ruminants in the field, they're giving milk, they're giving blood, they can regenerate these things on a regular basis and, and they're both very nutrient dense, but it's not something you see available. I, I almost, I've never really seen blood <laughs> anywhere. If I do, it's like always dumped down the drain. What? Is there, is there a reason why we don't see that? Yeah, it, I, it's perception, really. I mean, it, it, you go to other countries and you even in this country, you step back 100 years, blood was not something you poured down the drain. Blood was something you did things with, you know, certainly. It was, you know, when I wrote about that experience with that, we were at the Sambura who, who do a very, you know, approach blood and milk in a very similar way to the Maasai. I was taken aback. I didn't write about this entirely in the book, but parts of it I did. I remember that, the Sambura we were with were literally the epitome in my mind of what the human form should look like. I mean, they're everything about them. And, and again, I don't want to get maybe cheesy or kumbaya about it all, but not only physically the way that they look, but they had this aura about them, the way they just presented themselves to the world, their smiles, ear to ear smiles, perfectly straight white teeth, and just this aura, slender, but not gaunt muscular, but not like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean, it, tall, it, the way that they walked their gait, everything, you know, was to me the ideal human form. And then we go and eat with them and almost every meal is blood and milk. That's it. Blood and milk. Every meal. And I, I remember, wow, that's amazing. And then we came back home and I come back here to Maryland where it is illy of, of, of the two foods of the two ingredients that form the basis of what they eat every day, the most, the healthiest people I've ever seen in the world. And I've seen a lot of people, the two ingredients, one of them is highly illegal in Maryland and in, in many States. And the other thing is almost impossible to get. I can't get raw milk and it's difficult for me to get fresh blood. And we're sitting here trying to have these conversations about nourishment and healthy and feeding a growing population. And I, I can't even access the two things that may be the most. Now, I'm not saying that everybody should be drinking blood and milk every day, but I'm also saying we maybe, maybe it's something we at least need to have in the conversation. We're pouring, one's getting poured down the drain, the other thing people are going to prison for. Like, it's insane to me. So um, there was a chapter in the book 
on, uh, you know, so I opened the book obviously with, with that story, but um, there's a chapter in the book on, um, on earth, ash, and charcoal. And there's also a chapter on insects. And I, I put them in on purpose and I actually fought to put them in because I think, you know, all the other chapters for anybody who hasn't read it are based on, um, you know, food categories you'd recognize, dairy or grains or maize or meat or vegetables or whatever. But there's these other two chapters where it seems to be a little bit out there. And I did that on purpose not to suggest that people need to be eating clay and pulling ashes out of their fireplace and, you know, sucking them down every day. That's not what, why I brought them in there. But I, I wanted people to realize like, hey, if, if, if these things make sense to you, there's a much larger conversation that we need to be having. And now that our brains have kind of wrapped them, you know, we've wrapped our brains around some of these topics. Let's talk about earth, ash, and charcoal, which has been in every indigenous diet probably since, since time began. And other things like, you know, we started this conversation talking about jarred baby food. Probably every one of our ancestors, when they were weaning their children off of breast milk, were pre-masticating their food before they gave them to their kids, literally chewing their food in their mouth and not opening up a jar, beating up baby food, chewing on their food and putting the already chewed food in their baby's mouth. It's very common. It's probably what was happening. And, and with that, there's a lot of things happening when you do that. First of all, there's that personal human interconnection, that touch that is an important piece of it. But the adults are also have the enzymes that they need in their body to break that food down. And they're giving their children the enzymes needed to help break that food down and helping populate their body with a lot of the things that their body needs to be populated with. These are the conversations we should be having, not whether or not we should be all plant-based or animal-based or eating bull testicles every Tuesday. We should be talking about really important things that are stretching, you know, the, the insect, and, I, and again, I don't mean to go on a, on a tangent here, but I just want to say something about the insect thing right now, which is killing me. These conversations get so polarized to absurdity that we lose, you know, where the real answers lie in, in, in that craziness. We have been eating insects since before we ate a bite of meat ever. We've been eating insects. They were the, at that time, they were the most nutrient dense bioavailable parts of our diets 4 million years ago. They were incredibly nourishing. They, when we started eating meat, we were still eating insects. When we started hunting, we were still eating insects. The oddity is that some humans, the majority of humans on the planet today, don't eat insects. And now, if you look in the carnivore world, there's this debate. There's this huge, well, don't you, you can't eat insects. And the reason they're saying it is because most of the plant-based community or, or people that are anti-animal um, consumption are suggesting that, oh, insects are going to save the planet. We should be eating insects, not, not beef. And that's a silly argument as well. But then the opposite side of it is, no, you shouldn't be eating insects. The reality is, you know what? We should be eating insects. Insects are all over the place. They're incredibly nourishing. We shouldn't be eating insects at the expense of meat or organs. We should be eating insects in addition to animals. It is incredibly nourishing. And there are some really, really strong arguments for how ethical and sustainable it is to, 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 to eat these insects. And those are the kinds of conversations that we should be having. But here we are in these states where we can't even have raw milk and you can't have access to blood. So to more directly answer your question about blood, you can, the butcher, so just like any food uh, establishment, um, butchers have to submit uh, what we call HACCP plans or plans, approaches to how, how they take the animals apart. 
and what they do with the different pieces. It all has to be written down. They have it in a book somewhere. They've submitted it to the USDA. The USDA has approved this. So if a butcher tells you that they can't sell you blood, it's not because it's illegal to sell you blood. It's because they don't have it in their plan, how they get the blood out of the animal, what kind of container they captured in, how they store it before they sell it to you, those sorts of things. So same thing. You know, I'm having difficulty with one of my butchers right now to get spleen. There's nothing about spleen that's illegal to sell, but I can't get it from this particular butcher who hasn't written it in their plan that they're going to actually cut the spleen out and put it in a cooler at 42 degree or you know whatever it happens to be. So if you have a good relationship with your butcher, um, which you should, uh, you can get them. You know if they're willing, all they have to do is rewrite some of their plan and you know get approved by the USDA to do it, and then they you can get all the different pieces, including blood. If you can't have that happen, and I know there's a lot of butchers that are set in their ways or they just don't have the time to, uh, to to change some of these plans, you can get frozen blood or blood meal, and there's a lot of different sources for that. Some of it's online, but again, it's not necessarily the same thing. Again, I'm not, I, I just, just in full uh, transparency, we don't eat a massive amount of blood uh, at all. Um, we did have it when we were with the Samburo. I do love to make something called blood sausage. Actually, I absolutely love blood sauces, but we don't have blood in our, our daily or even weekly weekly diet. But if it was more readily available, um, it probably would be in my diet a little bit more. I tried it for the first time this past weekend from the bison that was killed. We all dipped our fingers in and, and tasted the blood, and it was surprisingly sweet and, and yeah. fresh and vibrant. And I imagine mixing it with milk would be tasty, like chocolate milk, nothing you know bizarre about that. It's like you said, and, and I imagined, you know, these, it's just wild how the most health is such a, a fundamental foundational thing. And, and it's gone so sideways as we've been focusing on just things that aren't, aren't all that important to, in, to quality of life. And, and like you mentioned, now there's this big uprising against bugs and against organ meats. It's really difficult because people are so squeamish about it. I know back in World War II, Organ meats were reframed. They were called variety meats because awful kind of sounds like the word awful and it has all these. <laughs> yeah, it's a terrible word. It really is. It is. So variety meats is great. And I wonder if insects could be reframed as, as almost like mini meat. Like, hey, here's all this mini meat we have lying around because that's kind of what it is. Like it's almost identical to, to animals, just a smaller version. Um, you know, we've got to find some creative solutions to the problems that we have. And because we've got these, we've got these tools. They're right at hand. Every, they're everywhere. And you know what they are? Yes, you're right. They're identical to, to animals. Smaller. They're absolutely identical to things like crabs and shrimp and lobster. I mean, that literally insects, crickets, grasshoppers, those kinds of things are land versions of these highly, for some reason, highly prized seafood things that we absolutely enjoy. I mean, if you, and if you think about it from that perspective, like, oh yeah, that makes sense. I'm like, seriously, who? Who's the first person that ate a cricket? Who's the first person that ate a lobster? I mean, seriously, that thing is 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 crazy mean looking. But we 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 love them, and I'm telling you, I I have we, we went to Thailand. Um, we were doing research for the book, but there were three things that I wanted myself and my family to experience as far as insects were concerned. One is we wanted to uh, experience insects because insects are just so foreign to most of us. I mean, maybe. It's not a huge leap for many people listening to um, to maybe have introduced some some offal in their diets, or maybe some of some people listening already eat liver or something like that. Got it. 
Um, and even blood may not seem, you know, somebody's probably been to Ireland or England and had blood or Scotland or something and had blood sausage or even Spain or something, right? Uh, that's not, but insects are incredibly foreign to us. Like there's nothing else like that in our diets except those huge versions of crabs and lobsters and things. So I really was trying to overcome some of that myself, but I wanted to experience three different things. One was I wanted to experience uh, a very traditional rural um, uh, approach to these insects. And we went to a, a place called Fitzanulac and spent time with a, uh, a weaver and egg farmer and his family, actually his entire village. And we harvested weaver and eggs and we cooked with the whole village. It was a magical time. We also went into Bangkok and I wanted to see what a more urbanized person in Thailand uh, how they approached insects. Like what, what was it like in the markets in Thailand where you have somebody that literally just came from the office in a, in, in a suit and walked down to the market and are buying some kinds of bugs from the market. So we, we did that. And that was mind blowing as well. But what was also fascinating is that there was a brand new restaurant in Thailand. It was called, the title was insects in the backyard. And the chef uh, was amazing. And in most cases with this modern approach to insects were, we're trying to mask something about it, mask the flavor, mask the texture, mask the fact that it's a mealworm or a cricket or something like that. This guy was an, an amazing chef. And what he was doing with the insects was what any good chef does with any ingredient. They, you know, they celebrate not only the texture and the flavor, but also the look of it. I mean, part of the presentation were these insects the way that they were. And it was, it was, it was mind blowing. And, and he really, showed us just in this one meal what this could mean. I mean, if all we do is, is switch our switch our minds a little bit and, 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 and get and rid ourselves of all this modern baggage that we have that have been forced on us for what food is and what food isn't, and, 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 and sat down at a meal like this, I'm telling you, it was an amazing meal. It looked good, it smelled good, and it tasted good. Those are three big... Movers, you know, in the food <laughs> yeah. that's all you need right there. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Was there, was there a, a certain specific bug that, that you tried that was the best tasting one or that was better than all the rest? Does one stand out? Because I always see like cricket. It's always kind of the same options that are sort of like ones that you see everywhere. But we, we typically in this country see crickets and mealworms because they're very easy to grow. Um, and most of the people farming them are farming them. You start getting down to Mexico and you got a, a lot of other options. So they have, um, I, and I'll answer your question in just a second. So they have grasshoppers, which are big, bi literally big, they're bigger, bigger than, than crickets. And if you go like into, into the markets in Oaxaca, at every entrance, there's somebody sitting there with a huge um, like woven basket full of uh, grasshopper, chapelines, grasshoppers that have been cooked with chili and lime. And oh my God, they're amazing. Um, they have a lot of... Um, uh, different types of grubs and, and worms and things that like live in the agave plant and those sorts of great, which are fantastic. I've had tacos made with them, but the literally best insect eating experience of my life. We were in, uh, we were actually in Mexico city and we were doing work on mishtamalization at a place called Cali Maize uh, with a guy named Rahel Sotelo. He's, he's amazing. And, um, we were doing all this mishtamalizing maize and grinding. And we spent hours and hours and hours with him. And then we ate and he had a wood-fired oven, and he, uh, with some of the maize that we had nishtamalized and, and cooked, we made a big quesadilla. And in this quesadilla, he put bone marrow and ant eggs. And 
it was the and cheese. <laughs> it was the most satiating, delicious thing I think I've ever eaten in my life. And you can only eat one. I mean, you're full. You're done. Like you're happy. Like <laughs> I can't. I have never been able to replicate that experience again because it was that amazing. Um, and it was again. It was an eggs. The an eggs are, are wonderful. That's incredible. Yeah, there's a whole new world, whole new world of, of culinary expression and, and ways to be nourished through, through that. And it's sort of sad that we're relying on a lot of these foods that, that are inflammatory more than, more than they are, are healing. And, and there was one, one question that I have written down here that I was really keen to clarify that you wrote about in the book, sure. something about potato skins. Are, are those all, all toxic? Um, yeah, let me t- yeah. Let me tell you. So I grew up and uh, and we listened to all the information that uh, potato skins are the most nourishing parts of the potato. And I remember I would eat the potato and waiting to have the skin left so that I could stick a pat of butter on the inside and eat it. God, I loved, I loved doing that. Um, And look, potato skins do have nutrients in them, but here's, here's the issue. Um, I went down to Peru and Bolivia and spent some time there with some indigenous Aymara and Quechua Indians to, uh, to learn. This is the area where potatoes were first domesticated. And these people have been living with the potato for almost 10,000 years. And I, and potatoes are incredibly native. Potatoes are incredibly toxic heirloom or land race versions of these potatoes are incredibly toxic. Like some will kill you outright toxic and modern potatoes still have those toxins in them. A lot of, a lot of the levels of those toxins have been bred down to a lower level, but they can still be very, very dangerous. If you uh, don't believe me, start Googling it. You can't imagine the amount of hospitalizations that occur every year around the world from people eating too many potatoes or potatoes that have, um, have had more of an expression of the toxin than, uh, than, than normal. A great example is if you have a potato that and all of us have seen it, if they're improperly stored, they will start to turn a little bit greenish. If you have a potato that has started to turn greenish, that is an indication of the level of toxin in the potato. Do not eat it, throw it, well, compost or whatever you're going to do with it, but don't, it is not fit for human consumption. Um, anyhow, so potatoes have toxins in them. I wanted to go to the root of where, People have lived with potatoes for 10,000 years and see how they detoxify the potatoes in hopes that I could come back here and figure out ways that I might be able to apply some of that you know, knowledge to modern approaches to modern potatoes. And I, I, it was a wonderful trip, but there's several things that uh, came out of it that I think are important here. One is every, and it, these people ate a lot of potatoes. I mean, I lived in Ireland for a year and I thought, they ate a lot of potatoes in Ireland. They can't touch the amount of potatoes these people ate regularly. I mean, massive quantities of potatoes every day. Every potato that I saw prepared or consumed, except for in one instance, was peeled. Every one of them. I don't care if they were fermenting it or, or sticking it in a river to make something called chuno or boiling it or roasting it or frying it. I don't care what they were doing. They always peeled it. Now, here again are people that have been living with potatoes for 10,000 years. Every one of them was peeled. And to make matters even, you know, make it even more, uh, drive the point home, the potatoes that they were eating, these these heirloom varieties of potatoes, don't look like modern potatoes, which look like a football. If I gave you a a potato and I gave you a a peeler, okay, I'll peel it, and it takes you about 10 seconds to peel the potato. These potatoes had crevices and knobs and were knocky looking. 
And to peel those potatoes, it takes like 10 times the effort as it does to peel a modern russet potato. They took the time to do it. Every single potato they peeled. And if you think about what the plant is trying to do with the toxins that it produces, it's trying to protect itself. And, and, and most effort is, and look, just like with anything, there's a balance and, and these, it, there's a cost to producing these toxins. There's an energy cost to producing these toxins. The plant just doesn't produce a toxin to be mean. A plant is producing a toxin because it, it confers some sort of um, reproductive benefit to that plant so that species can continue to survive. And when you think of it from those terms, it makes sense where you see the most toxins in these plants. A, a, uh, a plant that has a large, starchy, underground storage organ, like a rhizome or a tuber or a root or whatever, that it's going to use that. It, it, it spends the summer, spring and the summer, putting energy into that, um, you know, that organ and then spending the fall and the winter drawing out from that. So it continues to survive until the sunlight comes out in the spring and it puts leaves out and starts with photosynthesis again. That's one of the most important parts of that plant. And it does everything it can to protect that plant. It doesn't make sense to just put a toxin in the dead center of that potato because by the time that an insect or a fungus or a predator got to the inside of that potato, the plants are already dead. It makes sense that the most amount of toxins are on the outside, which is where the skin is. And that's exactly the case of, of where it is. So I will not eat a potato without peeling it ever again after that experience. And I think it's, <laughs> I certainly think it, it's helped me quite a bit. That doesn't mean that's the only thing you should do to potatoes. There's a lot of things that we should be thinking about with potatoes and do understand that they are inherently dangerous with glycoalkaloids and, 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 um, and uh, oxalates and, and other issues. There are some things besides peeling we can do like fermentation, but peeling is a great place to start. Awesome. Thank you for, for clearing that up and illuminating it <laughs> from a, a deep level. And I really appreciated everything that you've shared throughout, throughout this conversation as, as well. And, and I was thinking how it really is powerful, what, what you've discovered and what you share through your book, Eat Like a Human, your, your restaurant, The Modern Stone Age Kitchen, and, and your nonprofit, The Eastern Shore Food Lab. But in a way, you've sort of found this, this holy grail, like a really powerful set of stories, tools, mm. methods that is so essential at, at this point in time. So I hope um, this inspired and, and to encourage anyone listening to, to interact with, with your your content and everything that you're creating and, and learn from it and share it because it's incredibly important at, at this point in history where we are as, as a society, we need these things. So I just want to say thank you for, for taking the time to speak with me today, for doing all this work, putting out in the world. And um, yeah, thanks for all that. Well, listen, thank you for doing this podcast and thank you for giving me a platform to share this information. I mean, the work that you're doing is incredible and thanks for sharing this information. It's, it's, it's truly a pleasure. Well, is, is there anything else that you wanted to say or anything that we didn't uh, yeah. cover? Well, one quick thing, like just, just, just really, I, I know, and I used to feel the same way. And actually at some level, I still do. You listen to something like this and you're like, oh my gosh, some of this makes sense, but I'm more confused than I ever was. What do I do now? And and, and, you, and, and people might get this sense of, of, of feeling overwhelmed. And when you get this sense of feeling overwhelmed, it's kind of paralyzing. Like, okay, there's too much information. I don't know what I'm going to do, so I'm not going to do anything. Um, I just want to leave with a couple of, of maybe places that I would start if I was just starting out on this journey. Number one, the first thing I would do because they're so incredibly dangerous is, is go and, you know, if you're going to do nothing else, go into your closet and throw out every industrial nut and seed oil that's there, period. Just get rid of them. They, and don't worry about it. You're not wasting food because that's not food. 
If you want to do something with it, put it in the garage where it belongs and lubricate your machines with it. That, that, I mean, that, that's what you should do. That, and I'm dead serious. That's number one. Um, number two, just connect. I mean, if you're feeling confused, listen, continue to get the great, get great books, continue to listen to this podcast, continue to watch documentaries, continue to do all of those things, but start to take that responsibility and, by under, and understand that you have the tools that you need, your nose, your eyes, your taste buds, your sense of all of those things, your, even your ears can help you make the right decisions about how to do many things in your life, but definitely when it comes to food. The key is you have to make that connection to allow it to work. So the, the way you make that connection is to get back into your kitchen. I mean, start learning to make, start cooking again and start learning how to make the foods that you and your family enjoy as uh, from scratch as possible. If you live near us, come here because, you know, we'll, we'll help nourish you. But we also have um, uh, our, our nonprofit is a. Uh, is literally focused on a, on a huge teaching kitchen where we run classes on everything from cheese making to butchering. So um, you can come visit us here. We have a lot of online classes, but whatever you're doing, just try to reconnect with your food. And when you do that, I'm confident that a lot of the questions and, and, and confusion that you have now will get cleared up and will get answered. Awesome. Dr. Bill Schindler, thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.